Welcome to Wave Family Church. This is our sermon podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek God through His Word. We invite you to join us in person every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We would love to meet you. Or you can also visit us online at wavefamily.church. Good morning, Wave Fam. It's good to see you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Well, um, I'm excited to present to you what the Lord has put in my heart. Uh, Today is going to be a part one of two, simply because as I was diving in, as I was reading, as I was really pondering and having just that prayerful heart that is so required when you're reading and studying God's word, something just kept coming, you know what I mean? And so I think that today is going to be more about what the Lord is calling us to do as believers, as Christians, and we're going to use the text as a good instrument, as an example for that. Um, But this is just something, again, that I just felt the Holy Spirit just really, he said, slow down here, okay? Because initially I was going to finish chapter two and do the entirety of chapter three, but I think God really needs us to slow down or he wants us to slow down here. We need to listen, pay attention. uh, And I hope that this will speak to you today as it has me this whole week. Okay, and it's amazing how the Lord constantly prepares opportunities for us to live out the thing that he's teaching us to do. As uh, someone who is a teacher of the word of God, uh, I promise you, I have so many opportunities to live out this message. And so what I'd like to do is share with you just a little bit about it. Today, we're going to finish up chapter two of Esther. Now, uh, just a quick recap so that we're back into the story here for those of you who couldn't make it last week we looked at a little bit and we looked a little into the reality of the times that uh that we're looking at here and also the times that we live in the truth is that we all often fall under pressure uh, the world that we live in is something that is constantly pressuring us to do sometimes even the things that we don't want to do but because you know everyone's doing it or simply because we're afraid or simply because we're trying to self-preserve, or simply because we're trying to help someone else, we sometimes compromise because of the pressures of this world. And uh, I think that even in our weakest moments when we do compromise uh, of our convictions or or our faith is not necessarily shown, or we simply go with the flow, with the purposes again of preservation or self-gain, whatever it may be, whatever the situation is, God not only permits it, and this is the good news here, God not only permits these situations, but he also uses them to position us with purpose. You know, and so what I'd like to share with you a little bit is a little bit, you know, a, a compare and contrast, more, of, more than anything, a comparison between Joseph and Esther today uh, and Mordecai, because we could never really, I think, anticipate any of the l- events that happen in life. You know, sometimes more often than not, we're surprised by the, the turns and, and, and what's around the corner of each and every day. And, and, and you know, those are the little details that matter. God, God allows trials. He allows us to be able to go through hardship. And every single one of those moments are details that add up to the purpose that he has for us, for our lives, and for his glory. Now, we read that the Lord's favor was over Esther who was crowned queen of Persia. So at this point in our reading, Esther is now the queen, who was an unlikely candidate. I don't think that you could have actually or or anticipated that someone like her would end up in a position like queen of Persia. 
After all, this was the greatest empire that the world has ever seen at this point in time. God uses an unfortunate circumstance, in this case, a series of unfortunate circumstances, and turned it into a glorious victory. Now, I had briefly mentioned Joseph today, and as well, I also briefly mentioned him last week as a similar example. Uh, one whose circumstances looked tragic at, at face value, but is also a key figure. If you look at the meta-narrative of the, of the scriptures and the story of God's people, Joseph was a key figure who was used by the Lord, who was positioned with purpose, and the purpose was so that the people of the Lord would live, especially in times that were trying, especially in times that were of hardship. And this time, the people of God were experiencing a famine like no other. And what we did not recognize or what we did not see, you know, as we read the beginning parts of the story of Joseph is that all of those little details, those unfortunate circumstances, those times of hardship, those times of trouble, we scratch our heads and we wonder why the Lord allows such a thing from Joseph's life. We would not anticipate is that what the Lord was doing the whole time was he was positioning him so that he could be in a place to be able to help the people of the Lord. Because he was positioned by the Lord, the people of God not only uh, survived the famine, but they also persevered. And so the story continues from there. Now, I don't think, again, that anyone could have predicted Joseph's path. It's too unpredictable. The, the sequence of events are, are pretty radical. You could have never really even organized those kind of peoples to come together to set up this plan. Only God is able to bring a person from slavery to royalty. In fact, that's what he does. He's still doing that today. He is the one who brings us from slavery to sin, to heirs of the Most High. That's the business that the Lord's in, and trust me, no one else can do that. You can't do that for yourself. You can't be good enough to earn that kind of position. That is the Lord's work in our life. Now, if we consider Joseph's story, because I do want to talk about Joseph a little bit, just to kind of button up the purpose of this and the message that I feel that the Lord has for us, if we consider his story, the consequential circumstances of his faithfulness to the Lord, we would conclude that he paid a harsh price for doing the right thing. In fact, that seems to be the trend. You know, have you ever been punished for doing the right thing? Have you ever felt like, man, I really went out on faith there. I really went out on good faith there, and, and I just got the short end of the stick. This really seems to be Joseph's life for the most part, right? And, and currently, we're going to see that it seems like it's going to be Esther and Mordecai's life as well. And so that sometimes happens. But going back to Joseph, in Genesis chapter 37, we read the story of Joseph and we read that Jacob, his father, who was renamed Israel, he sent his son Joseph to check on his older brothers. Now, Joseph was the youngest of, at this point, 10, right? He's the 11th of 12 sons of Joseph. And, it, and uh, Jacob sends him to go check on his older brothers who are out in the pastures, who are uh, shepherding the flocks, and he says, go and see that your brothers are well. And so Joseph, in good faith, he goes and he does what his father has asked him to do, right? And the result of that is actually quite terrible. It seems that it is unfair. His brothers see him approaching, and what happens? They take him, they strip him of his cloak, and they determine to kill him. Now, there's a lot of details missing there, right? There's a lot of details in which we can even find and read in this passages, but I'm kind of flying over Joseph's story. Joseph does something out of obedience, out of reverence to his father, just to be met by his own kin, his own brothers, 
who are determined to kill him. And so because of Reuben, the oldest brother, Joseph does not die. He talks some sense into them and he says, no, don't kill him. Let's get a little bit more smarter. Let's sell him. And so the result of Joseph's obedience is slavery. He is then sold to uh, passerbys and then he is purchased by an Egyptian uh, official named Potiphar. And so here he is in a very unfortunate circumstance. And I would say that everything so far is pretty undeserving, right? You would say that's not fair. Joseph did not deserve that. <clears throat> and so Joseph is purchased by Potiphar, who's an Egyptian official. And God blessed Joseph's work and Potiphar's first house and, and Potiphar's house so that Potiphar would place him over everything. He would make him pretty much the uh, head official of the house, if, if that makes sense. And so I would say, well, that, that sounds deserving. Someone's noticing Joseph. Someone's noticing his faithfulness. Someone's noticing that he does good and he does right and that perhaps he's a God-fearing man. But Joseph, the Bible describes him to be well-fit and a handsome young fella. Now, anytime that the Bible gives us physical descriptions of a person, that matters. Last time we saw that Esther was attractive and pleasing you know, to the eyes, right? So it's interesting when the Bible brings this, again, it means something. Joseph was a well-built, handsome man. And so Potiphar's wife took notice of him. And um, she was very direct with him initially, not hiding her intentions with Joseph. And Joseph responds by saying something that I think is absolutely cool. And if we could all respond like this, to any kind of temptation, man, I think that the Lord would be honored by that. Joseph says, how could I do this immense evil? And how could I sin against God? Wow. I'm going to say that this temptation presented itself as easy as it gets to Joseph. And he recognizes this, that this is a sin. This is absolutely something that the Lord would, would be grieved by. And he says, how could I sin against God? Wouldn't it be awesome if we responded like that to our temptations? Wouldn't it be awesome if we responded to that, to the things that grieve the Lord? But man, we have a long way to go, don't we? And this example is beautiful. And if, again, I think that we consider it, that's a great answer for that circumstance. That's exactly what we have to do. And after some time, you know, because he wouldn't have it with Potiphar's wife, after some time, Potiphar's wife had determined that she would have her way with Joseph. And so one day, she grabbed him by the garment, and Joseph did what many men couldn't do. He slipped right out of those garments, and he ran. He was determined to do the right thing because his loyalty to the Lord was awesome. It was good. It was just a beautiful example of the relationship that we should have with him. And I'm thinking that out of embarrassment and anger, Potiphar's wife makes up a lie about what happened, which resulted in Joseph's immediate incarceration. That was undeserving. Here we go again. And so Potiphar, as far as we can see, would never thank Joseph for his fa uh, faithfulness. Because with Potiphar, Joseph did everything correct. If it wasn't for his wife, Joseph probably would have finished the rest of his days at Potiphar's house. And he would have been prosperous there, right? But here he is being put in jail, put in prison, in fact, the royal prison. 
And as far as we know, there was never a thank you for the good that he had done, right? Now let me ask you this. Have you ever been confused when you have chosen obedience to the Lord only to run into more trouble and not necessarily see triumph? And I feel like that happens often. When we submit to the Lord, when we move according to obedience to God, it seems that life gets harder, doesn't it? You know, what we would like is to have a medal of honor because we do that. I did the right thing. Give me that medal. Give me that trophy. I deserved it. But instead, what seems to happen is hardship, difficult circumstances. And so this is what Joseph is dealing with. And again, I might have said, or he would have said, God, I did the right thing. What happened? And I think often we do that. It's like, Lord, I'm confused here. What's going on? Why are you allowing this? What happened? And again, if this was ever you, or if this is you now, if you're going through something like this right now, where you feel like you're paying the price for doing the right thing, no, don't worry. There's something good here. There's good news that there are the details, the little details, the things that sometimes go unseen that lead to triumph. Those stack up and the Lord is in them. He's actually moving all those little things, the things that are so easy to oversee because we're dealing with the heavier things, right? The things that are more in your face. But the good news is that there are the details. And those details, when we do the things that honor the Lord, they do not go unnoticed to the Lord and they lead to triumph. And so we can trust that God is working all things for our good and his glory. Amen. Including difficult circumstances because God is in the details, and that's the title of our sermon today. God in the details, and this is again gonna be part one of two, because I really wanna focus on this. And so like Joseph, Mordecai and Esther may have been a little confused themselves, and we will read why. We will read in a moment that Mordecai and Esther discovered a plot against Xerxes, the king of Persia. In good faith, they revealed this to the king, and rather than being rewarded, like many of us would anticipate, right? When we do the right thing, we would anticipate a reward. Instead, they were sentenced for destruction indirectly, but that was the result or a result of the good that they have done. How could this be? How could it be that we were genuine in our actions just so that we would therefore be sentenced to destruction? How could this be? You know, I think that many of us could really relate to this. Again, it just seems like when we do the right thing for, for sometimes, you know, not always, sometimes we do have immediate reward, but when we do the right thing sometimes, when we're faithful to the Lord, when we choose to trust Him, it seems like things go haywire. It, think, it seems like things are just not, this is not what I expected. And it makes you think twice, and you probably have done this, for I have. I should have lied. I should have done the wrong thing. I shouldn't have been honest. I should have told him what I felt because the consequence of me doing the right thing didn't pay off. Do you know what I'm saying? So let's look at Esther chapter two. Again, I think there's just something deeper from this passage and I really would love to surface it for us to be able to learn and grow. Let's look at Esther chapter two, focus verse 19 through 23. It says this, now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthon 
and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who gathered, who gathered, <coughs> excuse me, who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to the queen, to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful gift that it is to be able to gather in your name for the purpose of recognizing you for who you are and what you do in our lives. I thank you for this moment that you have ordained that we would really open up our ears to hear your word. Father, I ask that you would help us have a prepared heart, Lord Jesus, that the seeds that fall on it would produce much fruit and that we would grow to be disciples, Father, that are willing and ready to do the right thing always, regardless of the potential painful circumstances that may follow. We know that you work all things for the good of those who love you and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out here is the plot of destruction here. And so that's the first section, a plot to destroy. That's what we have here. Again, Satan is constantly looking to destroy the people of the Lord. And next week, we'll look in a little bit more into that. Israel is never at peace. Did you notice that? The people of Israel will always have trouble. Even today, that continues. But this has been the case from the very beginning. There's always been a plot to destroy Israel. But this one, this plot is not against the Israelites at this point. This plot specifically is against the king. First thing I'd like to point out before we get into it, because I want to answer this question, because it's something that, that came up to me, is that first line, it says here, 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, okay, I want to stop there. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I still have questions as to why the virgins gathered a second time. My understanding was that they had gathered because they were trying to find and crown the new queen, okay? And so here they are gathered together. Some translations actually leave this little section out because it's a little bit of a head scratcher. But I don't want to ignore it. And I want to be honest with you. I'm not quite sure why they gathered a second time. <laughs> but here they are and they're gathered. All right. And there's a lot of speculation as to why they would have gathered. It could have been that they're maybe being moved from the harem to the house of the concubines. It could have actually meant that they were just being gathered because of ceremonial processes or whatnot. But here they are. And I think that this is just important for those who understand Persian culture, really. Remember, this was written to the, for the edification of the church since time began, since it was actually written. So I think that it was very instrumental, that detail was very instrumental to some. Right now, I couldn't tell you why they were gathered the second time. So if I'm allowed to not, to not know the answer to something, I would appreciate that. I'm still working through that. <clears throat> but here's the thing that I think is actually of more significance. And it is the fact that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, <clears throat> I think that... Uh, that matters because the king's gate was the entrance to the king's compound and it was manned by an official. So to be sitting at the king's gate does not mean that he was chilling there. All right. It does not mean that he was just kind of relaxing. That means that he actually held the office of official of the king's gate. And so what we see here is that Mordecai now has an official position. He is now someone who has uh, free roam, free reign in the king kingdom's palace, if that makes sense. 
Now, my guess is that Esther maybe helped him get positioned there. That's my guess. But what we do know is that now Mordecai has an official position. He is a person of importance. Now he has a little bit, of, a little bit more access to Esther because he's at free in the compounds of the king. <clears throat> and now, while he was in this official position, Mordecai was perfectly placed to overhear a plot to kill the king. Now, I only imagine, you know, what Mordecai was doing, but then these two eunuchs, these two guys here, who actually we were introduced to in chapter one, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs were angry with the king. I don't know what the king did to anger these guys, but they were ready to kill him, and this is the plot to destroy the king. Now, I'm gonna tell you, this isn't unusual. A lot of people conspired against kings, especially these, these type, the bigger ones, you know, in Persia. And I hate to break it to you, but this is actually how Xerxes goes out. He is uh, taken out from within eventually, okay? And his son Artaxerxes takes the reign after that, whom we also read about in the scriptures. It's fascinating the way that uh, history, extra biblical historical documents intersect with the scriptures just so beautifully. Just confirmation that the things that we have here are true and they're reliable and they're good. And so here we have two of the king's eunuchs who were angry with the king and they had determined to kill him. But Mordecai was presented with a situation here in which he had to respond. This particular time or, or situation demanded a response and he could do one of two things essentially he could ignore it or allow this this plot against the king to happen and permit that the king would actually go down or he could warn the king do the right thing we know that that would have been the right thing to do or would have it because you could also argue that this king deserves to be taken down if you think about the details about the king if you think about who he actually was, if you think about the reality that Esther, his daughter, was taken in without, you know, consent, essentially, to be put into a harem and then to go through the process that she did so that she would become the, he would never anticipate that she would become the queen of, of Persia. But is this king really worth saving? You know, sometimes we have to ask ourselves, is this really the right thing to do? Sometimes the right thing to do is not necessarily clear. And so here's what I have for us today. And I think that this is important for us to really uh, live because the word calls us to it. When we are presented with an opportunity to do, good, to do good or evil, let us do good to all. We must do good to all. As children of God, as believers, we don't have that choice. The Lord calls us to do good to all. So again, circumstances are presented as, as children of God, we will do the right thing. And so do the right thing regardless of whether or not it comes with reward or recognition. That shouldn't be our drive. Our drive should be, as Joseph said, how could I sin against the Lord? Our drive should be our commitment and our relationship to him, our loyalty to him. The fact that he is our Lord and we're submitted to his lordship. That is why we need to do the right thing, okay? So Mordecai takes this information to Esther. Esther's very much his contact right now for Xerxes, right? Because not everyone has direct contact to Xerxes, but it just so happens that Esther's now the queen, his daughter. How cool is that? How cool is that for Xerxes? Think about that. God is in the details. He's working little things to preserve even the enemies of the, of the Jews, right? Or is he, right? And so we'll, we're going to uh, unpack this a little bit more. And so 
Esther's the connection that Mordecai has, and he takes it to, uh, uh, to she takes it to Xerxes. But here's, here's what I think is also fascinating. At this point, she's still very much respectful of Mordecai as her, as her father. And we see here that Esther is still very obedient to him, and she continued to conceal her heritage, her Jewish identity, because she was asked to do this by Mordecai. Now, as I think through this, I know that I know that it is not good for us to conceal our convictions. It is not good for us to hide our faith. But why was Mordecai doing this? Why was he instructing um, uh, Esther to do this? And, and there's many reasons, and I think it was reasons for, of pres for preservation. And as we continue reading, we will see that there were Jews excuse me, there were people who were enemies of the Jews. And so having that known, it makes sense, hey, keep it on the down low because there are enemies out there. If anyone finds out that you're a Jew and you become the queen, you might, you might be expelled from that seat. I don't know what Mordecai's actually thinking. I'm just thinking through according to the facts that we have. And so uh, Mordecai, again, is com continuing to be that influence. And here's something that a commentator says, and I'd like to share it with you because I thought it was really good. I can't say it better myself. It says, this, no doubt, would be considered good policy on Mordecai's part to have her conceal her identity. And there's also lovely obedience in Esther, but it was a real unfaithfulness to God, often duplicated in our own times. Often we hide our convictions. Often we don't say the things that we ought to say because we're afraid. We're afraid that we're going to be uh, uh, persecuted for our beliefs, right? And I think that happens a lot. And the result of that is that darkness rises and the light kind of dims a little bit, right? And so we cannot, cannot compromise our faith. We need to be faithful to the Lord first and foremost. Here's the thing, though. If they cover their nationality and shame him, that is, that, that he hides his name too. Here's, here's the beautiful thing about God, and this is just so amazing about his character god will still make them nevertheless the instruments of his providence and so the fact of the matter is none of us are perfect all of us have fallen short of the glory of god and yet he uses us and he positions us with purpose if it's not a direct purpose where we would benefit from it or get a reward maybe god has someone in mind who is in your sphere of influence and so we need to be attentive to that and we need to be obedient, understanding that God is not limited in how he uses us to just benefit ourselves and those who are literally next to us. But he will use us to be able to have impact on those who are in our sphere of influence, who are around us, people that we perhaps don't even think about often. God works in mysterious ways. And so regardless of human intentions, God will still use us as instrument as his plan. And to me, that personally super encouraging because there's no way that I am deserving to be used by the Lord. And so going back to Joseph really quick, his brothers did not intend to launch Joseph into royalty. That was not their intention. Their intention, in fact, was to kill him, right? Potiphar did not intend to promote Joseph as his own superior, but that's what ended up happening because the Lord was in the details. He was actually moving these pieces and so that no one could anticipate what God was doing. And so to me, that's very encouraging, understanding that regardless of where I am today, the future may be just super surprising to me, but ultimately I can have the confidence that God is using all of these little things to put me in a place where I will glorify him or where I will see his glory and his kingdom will continue to expand and he will bless those whom he will bless and he will judge those whom he will judge and I get to be a part of it, 
That's just the grace of the Lord, and I'm grateful for that. And so regardless of the intentions that people have, God uses those ill intentions sometimes for the good of those who love him. In this case, he used them for Joseph's good. Because of what these people intended uh, for Joseph, they ended up being helped by Joseph. Like, how could you even, even set that up? You can't. This is a glimpse of God's providence. And so we also see this glimpse of God's providence with Mordecai. And let's go back here to Esther now. Now, all of a sudden, Mordecai has information that could mean life or death to the king. And so he decides to share this information. And he does the right thing and he notifies the king through Esther. And so Esther reveals this plot to Xerxes. She gives Mordecai credit, which is the right thing to do, I think. And it turns out that the information that Mordecai passed was good. It was legit. I don't know what they did to investigate it, but they figured out, yes, this was definitely a plot against the king. And this information, this intel absolutely saved him. Now, this was a big deal. So much that the rescue was recorded in, recorded in Xerxes' book of Chronicles. Every king had a, a book of Chronicles. Whatever they did, whatever happened in their time was written down and it was logged. Now, you would imagine that this was a big deal, big enough for Mordecai to receive some kind of award. But there is no award. All that happens is the notes are jotted down, right? The only two Jews we know of so far in this story just saved the life of a pagan, pomped, an arrogant king as described in chapter one, right? Who in self-gratification defiles young women, takes what he wants, thinks of himself as a deity. Yeah, they did something good to this guy, but there's something else about him that we should not dismiss. He is also Esther's husband. You know, every woman, in fact, I was talking to my sister over there, was defiled by this king except for Esther in the sense that she actually became his wife. And so the Lord is preserving his people in a way that sometimes we can't even fathom. We can't even imagine him, but the Lord is at work and we can trust that. And so, yes, we do good even to those who we feel don't deserve it because the Lord has called us to. Paul exhorts us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, to do good to all. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Now, when we did a series in James, we talked about how the, the, there were many of people, believers who were in the church, who were actually causing a lot of pain, a lot of grief to those who were also in the brothers and sisters in the faith. We ought not to do that. We especially should not do that. But the fact is that even for those who are considered our enemies or outsiders, we must also behave in a way that's good and faithful to the Lord, because this is it. It's not because they're deserving of it, but because the Lord has called us to it. And so you may be wondering, how could I do good to those who are hurtful, though? And, 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 and how and why would I do good to those who mock righteousness and do evil? For after all, we're surrounded, heavily surrounded by people like this. Well, the quick answer is, again, because the Lord calls us to it. And we can trust that he will handle it. He will handle it. We don't need to handle it. We don't need to be the judge in any circumstance that we feel is unjust, right? We will do our part and we will do it according to God's word, but we can trust that he will handle it. This is a mark of a true Christian to do good to all, even our enemies. Look at Romans chapter 12, 14 through 21. It exhorts us for this, to this. It says, to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, meaning the humble. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. I think, guys, we have some repenting to do, don't we? But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. If he says that, we can trust that and we will leave it to him. Amen. And if that wasn't hard enough for us to hear, he continues and he says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will reap hope. Uh, you will, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow. This is a tall order. This is a big ask if you ask me, right? It is not only by... The, uh, it, it, this is nothing that is possible by our own power because if I think about doing this and doing this well, there's no way I could. My emotions get in the way. My, my feelings, my thoughts get in the way. What I perceive to be uh, wrong gets in the way and I take action according to my way, right? But it is only by the power of Jesus that we're able to do this. Again, this is a mark of a true Christian. This is something that's literally impossible to do unless you have the Holy Spirit power in you. Now, the gospel is what transforms us to be Christ-like. And this truly is Christ-like behavior. It demands that we treat others as Christ treated us. How did Christ treat us? Let's think about that. He treated us well when we were undeserving. He loved us when we were undeserving, right? We mocked him. We spat on him. We cast lots for his robes. You put the crown on thro uh, uh, thorns on his head. You know what was that? That was our sins. Our sins is what caused this physical pain on our Lord. And the physical is nothing compared to the heart. The, the, the way that we grieve this heart based on the things that we have done. We have disobeyed him. We have mocked him truly. We have disregarded his will. And yet, while we were still sinners, he dies for us. Greater love is found nowhere else than he who died for his friends. And we will read later because I do want to share that passage with you. You may die for someone that you love, but what about someone who's done you wrong? What about for that person who's really betrayed you? Would you die for that person? Ah, I think you'd be kind of crazy to do so, but you know what? Sometimes the Bible calls us to do crazy things. But we can trust that all things will work for the good of those who love God. And that's the call today. I think that we need to start growing up in our faith. I think that that's how we will change this world. This is why the Lord calls us, you know, to read, to, to, to bolster one another's faith, right? To encourage one another in the faith, because this is how we keep one another accountable, but ultimately is the word who, that instructs us. And I know that I'm kind of veering off of this story here, but I feel like this is really the heart of what's going on here, because I'm thinking, why did Mordecai do this? What's going on here? Why is the result of the way that it is? Again, we do good because we are called to do good. We have to treat our fellow uh, uh, believers and those who are not with kindness and love because that is the way that the Lord has treated us. Amen. Here's the other thing, though. As disciples of the one who died for his enemies, what does it mean to be a disciple, a follower, a learner, uh, uh, someone who imitates the teacher, right? He, he died for his enemies. <laughs> that means that we need to be willing to do that in some form or another, right? 
But here's the other thing is, we're not going to be loved for doing that either. In fact, the Lord warns us, they hate you because they hate me. And so all of this is not going to have an immediate reward. We're not doing it here. We're not doing it to receive accolades. We're not doing, here, doing it to receive a, a plaque or put our poster or so someone does a, a new special on us, right? We do this because we're honoring the Lord. We're faithful to him. We're obedient to him. We're submitting to his lordship. <clears throat> and guys, one thing that I like to point out, this is not to say that we condone the sin. We still hate the sin, right? But we must do what the Lord has called us to do, to do good even to the sinner. Because this is how we may save some. Salvation belongs to the Lord, but for some reason he has used us to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands, right? And so let's do that. Let's be instruments. We can only do that faithfully if we're obedient to him. The next thing that I'd like to note is that doing the right thing may not come with recognition rewards. Let's talk about that a little bit more. And if it does, it doesn't always come immediately. In fact, sometimes we get the opposite. Verse 23 of our passage here says, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men both were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles and in, in the presence of the king. Now, if we get a sneak peek for next week, it says this, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. You might be wondering, if you haven't read this, who is Haman? This is the big bad guy. This is the antagonist of the entire story. And then later we read, and I'm giving you a little bit of a spoiler here, but again, you can go and read it yourself as well. Haman is the enemy of the Jews. And so Mordecai and Esther do an honorable thing. They do the right thing. And as a result, Haman is promoted, the enemy of the Jews. And this is what I, what I was saying. Instead of being rewarded, instead of being recognized, someone else gets promoted whose intention is actually to destroy the two who did right for the king. Do you see that? Now, don't you think that what they did truly deserved some recognition? I mean, this is the king. He had things. He could have done something for them, but he didn't. They just saved his life and nothing, as far as we can see, there's no immediate recognition, no medal, no bonus. Come on, at least give the guy a bonus. No one needs to know about it, right? No party, nothing. Instead, the king does something terrifying. He promotes Haman, the enemy of the Jews, who will threaten their very existence in verses of head, but we will leave that for the future. But what just happened here? Again, it's like, what did we do? What have we done? If we didn't spare the king, Haman would have never been put in this position. So at a glance, this looks like a terrible outcome, but God is in the details. For after all, a simple routine notation was taken. It was made of the thing that had happened. And for now, that's all that matters. So the fact that Mordecai and Esther did the right thing, it was noted. When you do the right thing, it's noted. You know, last, uh, yesterday, yesterday morning, we were talking with the guys who were having our men's breakfast, and, and one of my brothers mentioned that God has a much better record-keeping system than we do. You know, he knows the details of everything, even the things that go unsaid, and we just think sometimes. And so he will respond according to the things that even happen in the dark, in the background, right? He knows everything. He knows our heart. He knows our deeds. He knows it. And for now, in this case... This was recorded, and that's all that matters. In the next, 
thing we need to do is just trust the Lord, right? And this is a reason, this is a good reason <clears throat> uh, for us to just be confident because we know that he knows everything. Now, I think that it is a human instinct to desire a reward or an accolade or some kind of recognition. Sometimes we do it for that. How many of you guys have, have children, yeah? Or have had children? My kids, if I think about them when they were little, they had little bodies and big old heads. You remember those days? It was so cute waddling around. They're trying to figure out that if I do something good, I get rewarded, right? And so they have that kind of attitude. They have that kind of uh, disposition. And so I remember each of my kids did their own thing, right? And so they would do whatever they could just to even get an applause. Yay, good job, it was great. And I was like, thank you. And I remember my daughter, I'm gonna throw her under the bus because she's not here right now. She would sometimes stand up in front of a group of people and sing. And everyone would feel so awkward. It's like, oh, why are you doing this? But she would go up there and she would sing with all her heart and she would come up with the lyrics on the spot. So talented if I think about it. But we were just like, what are you doing? And after she was done, she would stand and go. <laughs> and wait for that response, right? Woo, good job, yay! You know, the littlest one would you do silly things with her face with elastic rubber bands or whatnot just so that she can get laughter. This is just something innate in us. Sometimes we do things just for the purpose of recognition. Yes, I understand that we have to do that, especially in the workplace, because it's, it's, it's our lifeline, right? Amen. But this isn't always the case for a Christian life. We don't need to do things for the purpose of that. We need to fight that. We need to understand that the reward that's ahead of us is not here for now. For nothing here compares to the eternal reward that we have in heaven. And we need to keep that in mind. And so we do the right thing. We do the thing that is hard. We do the thing that is honoring for the Lord. And that does not go unnoticed. It may be that you are rewarded for that, right? It may be that you are recognized for that and praise God for that. But even that recognition will not compare to what the Lord has for us in heaven. And so we need to look ahead to that and we need to trust that. Now, let me say this to you. Doing the right thing should never be about immediate reward and recognition. It should be about or, or, or totally out of reverence and obedience to, to God. And so as I'm reading this uh, and I'm reading some of my commentaries, this stuck out to me. And I want to share this with you because it really hit me hard. Uh, it says, if we shift to the mindset, in fact, then we quip the mindset of, of, of requiring an immediate reward, then we may quickly move to doing what is right when it is inspected and not doing what is right because it is expected. Think about that. And I'm going to ask you that. Are we doing what is right because it is inspected and we want people to notice it? Or are we doing what is right because it is expected of us as, as, as believers, as Christians? And so, my friends, let's do what is right always. And do not be surprised if no one thanks you again. Not everyone would love you because not everyone loved Jesus. <laughs> In fact, they hated him when he did well, when he did good for others. Not everyone will appreciate your good works. In fact, they will despise you for it sometimes. Haven't you seen when people go and do something good? Some people hate that about you. Jesus did the ultimate good, and we should note that he was and he continues to be despised. And think about who he is and what he accomplished here in this earth. Why would you despise him? Only because he challenges our sin. That's it. The only time we rebel against the Lord or the reason why we want to rebel against the Lord is because our sin is being challenged and we love our sin more than the Lord. So let's think about that. But Jesus did the ultimate good. 
And he continues to do that. Take heart, though. God takes note of those details when we do things that are unrecognized. When we do things and we're not recompensed by it, he takes note. Revelation 22:12 says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my re- recompense with me uh, to repay each one for what he has done. That's a promise of God for the future. And it's, it's, it stands, and I trust it. God is keeping detailed records, and his promise is that we will be made right. His timing is impeccable and perfect. So even though you're not recognized, or even though you feel like something really turned to the left instead of to the right, like this, is, this isn't right, his timing is perfect. That was intentional. That was a detail that was important for the grand scheme of the purpose that he has for your life. Again, we do not do what is right towards others to receive gratitude, reward, or accolades, but rather we must do it for the glory of God. What glorifies God? Truth, love, compassion, the things that are admirable, the things that are noble, the things that are just, the things that we read here, the things that really mimic the attributes of who God is. That is what we must do. So as as a recap, I'm going to give you a few takeaways, and they're just going to be review. And again, I wanted to stop here really because I think that this is important for us to recognize that we have circumstances in which we have to decide. Are we going to do the right thing or are we going to do what we think is the right thing? And the only way we know what the actual right thing is is if we have an objective standard to that. And here it is right here. If we know the word of the Lord, we know what is right and we know what is wrong. We know what to do that will please the Lord and we know what to do that will grieve the Lord. And so four takeaways, again, I'm just going to review, recap what I've already said. Takeaway number one, we are, when we are presented with an opportunity to do good or evil, let us do good to all. That's what the Bible calls us to do. Let us do good to all. I promise you, after today, the Lord's going to give you opportunities for this. So let's be mindful of that. Let's pay close attention to what's going on around our surroundings. Takeaway number two, doing the right thing may not come with recognition or reward. At least not here, at least not now. But God is faithful and he is aware of the unseen details and he will recompense those. Okay, that's a promise of the Lord. Now here's the takeaway for the kids. Kids, I do what is good because I love Jesus, not because I want a prize. Right? That's why we do what is right. Because we love Jesus, not because we want something, we want something, we want something. Doing the right thing is not about getting recognition or rewards. It's an act of reverence and obedience to the Lord. Mordecai and Esther did the right thing because it was the right thing to do, not because Xerxes was deserving of it. And so God is in the details. He works behind the scenes. Although Mordecai should have been rewarded, I do believe this with all my heart. What he did was right. He should have been rewarded for his allegiance. He was forgotten instead at least for the time being, like Joseph before him. Joseph spent a lot of time forgotten. He actually wondered, what's going on here, right? But God is ruling sovereignly, and he will use these little events in his own time for our good and his glory. Now, the invisible hand of God is at work, and we can trust that always. His timing may not be what we prefer, given the limited knowledge that we have, because after all, we have very finite, very limited minds that, are, that is constantly trying to comprehend and understand an infinite being. <laughs> we'll never do that. And I think that's actually such an encouraging thing that our God is so big that we will never ever be able to wrap our heads, our heads around it. But we know this, that he is always on time. 
impeccable timing, his time. Take heart, be confident that God will preserve you regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what's going on around you, regardless of whether or not you feel like, I just can't do the right thing. You should, we should. When we do that, I feel like this world is gonna turn around for the better, right? So our Lord Jesus will sustain you. That's a promise from him from 1 Corinthians 1.8. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. These are the words of the Lord for us. And I want to close with a reading of God's word because I think it's important for us to do this constantly. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. I just want to read verse 1 through 11. We'll close with this. But as we read it, listen to it. Pay attention to these words. All right. This is the Lord's word for us. And really take heart of it. Let's not do this just as a routine or as a favor, you know, to me because I want to read this passage. No, listen to these words. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we will be reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I'm just heavily convicted today, Father, by the situation that I read here in the book of Esther. And Lord, I know that you have put your word here before us that we may learn that we would be trained up by it, Father. And I see that these people, these key characters, Father, in your word have done right by you and you have used them to save people. Lord, I ask you that you would give us the strength and the ability to do that, that some might be saved. Lord, we ask you to be our God we ask you to be our rock, our firm foundation, that when we are overwhelmed, that we look to you alone, that we would not be uh, uh, convinced, Father, by the wisdom of the world, Lord Jesus, or our scary surroundings, but we would be firm and locked in on you, that our sights would be on you, Father, knowing that the reward is ahead of us with you, Lord Jesus, and nothing here could ever compare. Give us the strength, Father. And thank you for the blessing, Lord Jesus, that it is to be part of your flock, that it is to be redeemed, that it is to experience the love and the grace that you have poured on us. And so I pray, Father, that you would...
continue to use us to the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.